I fear that our listeners must be tiring of us whining about the overtime threshold. But given that it is the single most important intervention in economic policy, we are not going to let it go. We've called the overtime threshold the minimum wage for the middle class. Half of American workers work more than 40 hours a week. 20% work more than 50 hours a week. All these workers are missing out on time and a half. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. One of the things you and I have in common, Nick, is that when we get our teeth into a subject, we don't like to let go of it, do we? No, we do not. No, we do not. No. And I fear that our listeners must be <laughs> tiring of us whining about the overtime threshold. But given that it is probably the single most important or potentially important intervention in economic policy that could materially impact middle-class people, we are not going to let it go until the Biden right. administration does the right thing. <laughs> and and a lot of people might be might be surprised uh, by that assertion of yours or think that you're it's a little hyperbolic to say yeah. that it's one of the single most important policies. Uh, but you know, as we've talked about before and we'll talk about again on this episode, but we've we've called this the overtime threshold, the minimum wage for the middle class. It is, it, it is a core part of uh, American labor policy and has been since the 1930s. And the erosion of overtime, not just this actual threshold, the salary level below which you qualify for time and a half pay, that's 150% of your regular pay for every hour you work over 40 hours a week. A lot of people might not be even be aware that, that they um, uh, should be getting this. The erosion of that, the erosion of the knowledge of that has played a huge part in rising inequality uh, in uh, the United States over the past 40 years and in the uh, erosion of the middle class. Just the fact that people aren't aware of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the thing is, is that it used to be such a central norm in the culture of work in the country uh, that, you know, it supported not just more income for ordinary Americans who used to rely on overtime in many cases right. for extra things, but it also had a huge role in protecting the lifestyles of families because it meant that you just had a lot more time. I mean, the right. difference between working 40 hours a week routinely or working 60 hours a week routinely for the same pay is the difference between a good life and a shitty one. I mean, it right. really is. And um, particularly, again, you know, as I've emphasized before, if you're a highly paid executive or, a, you know, a bond trader on Wall Street making millions a year, you know, screw you. You don't deserve overtime and don't need it. And, and if and if you cho choose to work 70 hours a week for all that extra money and yeah, in return, you, you sacrifice yeah. having a close relationship with your children because they never see you. Well, that's your choice to make. Yeah. 
I don't know that that's the right choice, but that's your choice to make. Absolutely. And, that's, but, that's yeah. different from being a retail worker who's misclassified yeah. as a manager and is working 60, 70 hours a week just to get by and never sees their children. That's right. And, you know, I think, I think, um, you know, a lot of work maybe evolving towards uh, the, the, the kind that, you know, sh where, where people should be paid over time, even, even so-called white collar work, it just is the case. And I, I think that reestablishing this norm is so, so important, both to secure the lives of middle-class families, but also, um, you know, as we, as we've said many times, it's such a big job creator. If you prevent people from turning three 40 hour a week jobs into two 60 hour a week jobs, boy, you can create a lot of jobs in an economy uh, of our size. But, you know, uh, podcast listeners, you've heard Nick and I talk about this subject for a long time. You don't have to take our word for it. Uh, today, we're talking with uh, Marcus Baram. He's a journalist who wrote a four part series uh, in Capital and Maine on the overtime rule. Uh, and he talked to a lot of the people who are impacted by the erosion of this standard. Yeah. So let's talk to Marcus. My name is Marcus Baram. I'm a longtime editor and journalist and reporter and writer. And I did a series of stories about the overtime wage rule for Capital and Maine, which is a news nonprofit based in California. So uh, as you just mentioned, you did a, a four-part series uh, about overtime for Capital and Maine. A lot of people aren't even familiar with uh, overtime. Uh, what led you to pursue this subject? Yeah, a good question. Uh, I mean, basically, I've been focusing on income inequality for Capital and Maine. So going back to probably spring of 2021, uh, the publisher of Capital and Maine, who I'd been co-publishing stories with for many years, brought me in because he wanted to launch uh, a series of stories that were just focused on income inequality. Now, obviously, it's a very broad category. So he wanted to look at the kind of the sources of income inequality, um, some analysis of it, uh, what's responsible, and uh, some solutions to reduce the uh, massive income inequality we have in this country. And so during that, I was assigning stories about all kinds of subjects from the racial wealth gap to uh, rural income inequality to income inequality in certain uh, sectors of the economy, like obviously teaching uh, and the manufacturing sector. And along the way, I started to look into overtime pay and came across this statistic that it was stunning to me. Uh, and then 1975, more than 60% of salaried workers qualified for overtime, which is, you know, very, very standard time and a half. We're all kind of familiar with the concept. And now it's plummeted to about 15%. And then actually in 2016, it, had, it was as low as 7%. So it had gone from 62, 63% of salaried full-time workers to at one point less than 7%. And that's just stunning. So all these millions and millions of workers, tens of millions of American workers who are working harder than ever. If you look at surveys, right. something like half of American workers work more than 40 hours a week. Something like 20% work more than 50 hours a week. All these workers are missing out on time and a half, this kind of standard that we're all used to. And I had no idea about that. And I consider myself pretty savvy about uh, economic issues. 
uh, and trends, but that right away it stood out to me as something that deserved um, like a bigger analysis, more in-depth uh, research. Right. And to be clear, they're not just missing out on time and a half. Most of these people are missing out on any pay at all for those extra hours. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, and you have that sense that basically your hourly pay goes down, right? Yeah. If you're working 50 hours a week, you just do the math. You, then your hourly pay goes down. You know, what is that? Uh, 20%. Um, 25%, 20%. Yeah. 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 Uh, so you're missing out on a lot of income. So it's really unfair in a very fundamental way. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I just have to ask you, I mean, you know, I had the, I had the overtime revelation in 2014. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, as an employer, I had to come to grips with the fact that I had been unconsciously playing this game for most of my career, basically persuading people into working 60 hours for 40 hours worth of pay. And, you know, when you sort of add it up, economy-wide, the scale of this scam is breathtaking. Don't get me wrong. You know, like if you're a super highly paid executive, the price of that is to work your ass off. And if that means 70 hours a week, that means 70 hours a week, right? Or yeah, or 90 hours a week. Yeah, whatever it is, for right? Golden yeah. Sachs and they were junior yeah. associates and they slept yeah. in the office. And you're like, yeah, okay, because you're going to make millions. So, you know, it's... Uh, yeah, I understand that. But if you make $40,000 a year as an assistant manager at a retail store or something like that, right. it, it is totally absurd. And I, I guess I'm asking, I mean, it, it, did you have this similar revelation where you're just like, holy shit? <laughs> like, yeah, what no, I mean, I mean, it, the more you dig into it, the more like outraged you get and the more yeah. stunning it is. Because, I mean, one thing is looking at the the salary threshold, which is basically anybody who makes more than that doesn't qualify at all for overtime, except for like very narrow uh, exceptions. But in general, so basically that was eight thousand dollars in 1975, roughly eight thousand dollars, which, you know, at the time was a little more of a average salary for many workers, especially yeah. working class and lower middle yeah. class workers. But that stayed frozen until you know 2004. So it's unbelievable that the year 2000, somebody making $10,000 a year, which is a pretty shitty salary, could not qualify for overtime. I mean, that's just crazy. It is. Uh, and then it, it stayed crazy. at 23,000 until 2019. Which again, like who's anybody making twenty four thousand? Like the woman I profile in my first story, in you know two thousand fourteen and fifteen, she's making twenty four thousand and raising a kid as a single mom, and she can't qualify for overtime because she's working fifty fifty five hours a week. That's just insane. Yeah. So Nick and I came at this topic through through the policy wonk angle. Our first introduction to it was simply. Oh, this is something that the White House can do without Congress, that it can be done through right. rulemaking. And we started looking at it and then we realized what a big issue it was. Uh, our initial interest was simply it was something that the president could could do. What we didn't do and, you know, and we researched it, we know all the numbers, we can see how big a problem this is. What we didn't do. Well, thank thankfully, I'm no longer a journalist, so I didn't actually have to go out and interview people. So we don't have that one-on-one -on -one experience with uh, the people that this is impacting. Uh, you do. When you talk to these people, did they know how much they were being cheated? 
And no, that, I mean, that's part of the problem, which I think I talk about in one of the stories, is that there's so little, I mean, it, it's one of those situations, which is very common, I think, with income inequality in general, is that the new reality is so different from the old reality that people, it's like the frog boiling in the pot. They kind of right. get used to this new miserable situation. Yeah. So they, they have no expectations of anything better. So I think most people were kind of like, oh, yeah, I mean, they had heard the idea. They kind of knew vaguely about overtime, but they were like, yeah, I, I don't get that. Like, I've never gotten that. I've never been told that I might qualify. So it's not even a consideration. I mean, I was yeah. like, oh, the pot at the end of the rainbow? Yeah, whatever. Like, yeah. That's not my day-to-day reality, which is really, really upsetting because it has that insidious effect of like making people not, because they don't expect it, they don't demand it. And so you had people who were just like, ah, whatever. I worked 60 hours. That kind of sucked last week. But, you know, that's how it is. That's what everybody does. Right. And so nobody's, you know, very few people are complaining. Yeah. Except for everyone else in every other developed country. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Uh, I mean, it's very common. I mean, I, I mean that. And also, I think, uh, I mean, overtime is interesting because it is something you do get across uh, wage sectors. Like I'm, do- I'm doing some reporting on wage theft right now for ProPublica. And there it's a little bit different because like you or I, if we got, you know, instead of $2,000 every two weeks, we got 1,985. We'd be in there with HR being like, what's going on here? Look at my check. Yeah. And instead, a lot of low wage workers, especially undocumented workers, don't do that because they're vulnerable. But with overtime, even that is like everyone's launch line. I've worked, you know, 60 hours a week for some jobs and never, never even thought about overtime. I was just like, all right, this is the way it is. What can I do? So um, what did you learn when you talked to people who had been taken advantage of this policy failure? What, what surprised you in, in your discussions with them? I, you know, I guess it was a little surprising. I mean, going back to that previous point about how people just weren't like that upset about it. Like there's a certain cynicism that's set in, you know. Uh, especially I think among low wage workers who were just kind of like, yeah, oh really? Yeah. Okay. Like then when pigs fly, like, you know, that's not really something I even thought about. It's not going to happen. So there's a kind of world weariness, which is sad. I feel like a hundred years ago, there would have been people in the streets marching. Yeah. Instead people are just like, "Eh, I need this job. I don't want to, you know, upset my boss. And that's another thing which comes through, which, you know, I've, I've done stories on union busting too, is that people are just, they're afraid of creating, you know, stress, like anything to give your boss a reason to say, yeah, you know what, you're out of here. You're a bigger pain in the ass. Uh, and that's sort of a new economy too, is that it's very, people are very vulnerable. Nobody has the confidence to complain. So there's a certain like, yeah, uh, cynicism among the people. I mean, some, I think we're really educated and you're like, wow, they were kind of amazed to hear that they actually do qualify or they may qualify in some cases. And that, you know, that was inspiring. But I think a lot of workers just didn't expect it. Or, or they would qualify if they hadn't been misclassified. Uh, I, yes. I think the, the number yeah. you had in uh, one of your pieces in California, they looked at it and 93% of employers yeah. had misclassified employees in the previous year. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. Uh, and it, it is ridiculous when you think about it. Like I have another example of like a dollar general, like which has like basically two employees at all times. And the so-called manager, you know, uh-huh. basically sweeps the floors, he stocks the shelves. He does like everything, you know, except very little management, but he's considered a manager. 
So he right. has an exemption from overtime, even though he's doing everything in the store. Which again, I think there was I even I tried to include more of. There was some like uh, uh, a hearing in California in the state senate that discussed this, and some uh, very aggressive, like I think an official government official was questioning some lawyer for industry, and it was just like it was it was almost like surreal the arguments back and forth because the guy was like, well, even though he's not really actively managing, it, he's thinking management, like he's he's planning management. And the government guy was like, really? How do you assess that? How do you know what's in his mind? It was like so like almost on an existential level <laughs> like that he's a manager because he is thinking about his management responsibilities. It was like for a fast, it was about a fast food restaurant managers. You know, according to a 2019 Gallup poll, 52% of full-time workers mm. report working more than 40 hours a week, 39% work at least 50 hours a week, and 18% work at least 60. So mm. this is like a, it's a big pervasive problem. Um, mm. It would be fun, actually, uh, Goldie, to put a little poll up in the show notes and, uh, and ask our listeners uh, what proportion of them uh, with full-time jobs work more than 40 hours a week. And I think that, you know, where the conversation around this usually goes is obviously income. But I think, you know, a bigger issue may be just time, right? Mm. I mean, the difference between working 40 hours a week and 60 hours a week yearly really is the difference between leading a good life and kind of one that is besieged particularly if you're not making a million bucks a year, it's one thing, you know, like if you're making a shit ton of money, working 60 hours a week is no problem because of course you have the resources to pay people to do all the stuff you don't do in that extra 20 hours a week, you know, whether it's childcare or gardening or, uh, you know, whatever it is, you know, you can use money to make up the difference. But for most people, you know, certainly somebody making $50,000 a year, $60,000 a year who works 60 hours a week, not 40, um, that's not enough money to pay to get done the stuff that life requires, much less enjoy yourself or help your kids with homework. Yeah, right? for sure. It's a quality uh, of life issue. I wonder if the pandemic hasn't to a certain extent reminded people about how awesome it is to have a little bit of time back. And mm. I, I wonder if that will play into how people feel about this issue right now. Uh, yeah. I mean, that was a big issue. I think we, a lot of us talked about that during the pandemic, how nice it was to be at home or not to be commuting and to have that extra time. And it definitely, you saw like more worker um, workers demanding more from their employers you know, there was more demand for higher wages, uh, more time off, better um, treatment, better policies. And that definitely picked up because some companies did raise their wages. So it remains to be seen, though, I think, whether that's going to last. You know, it feels like already wages have kind of gone back down or the wage growth has, that was pretty dramatic for about a year and a half has kind of slowed. I wonder whether people are going to start feeling vulnerable enough to, you know, not have the 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 power yeah. uh, to to demand more that's part of the issue is worker power you know that like even if you don't have a union there used to be a little more sense of like you have a stake in the uh, discussion you can demand more and that's kind of disappeared so workers have are so vulnerable even if you're an accountant or be a white collar worker 
a lot of this is we we allowed the overtime threshold to erode so that many fewer people qualify. We allowed regulation to erode so that right. we basically accepted all of this job misclassification. Because let's be clear, even if you are you are over the overtime threshold, if you're not a manager, you still should get overtime. If you're not actually in management, it's you know there are job areas that don't job classifications that don't get overtime. Um, yeah. The more pernicious thing to me is that erosion of norms and expectations that if you go back and you watch TV of the 1970s, TV and movies, there was this trope, this expectation. People looked, sometimes counted on overtime. They knew, you know, in the busy season, they were going to get overtime and they relied on that time and a half pay. They looked, some people looked forward to it because that's what they would use to pay for the family vacation or to uh, buy uh, gifts at Christmas. It was part of the culture that time and a half was a thing. You say right. time and a half, and we have written this. And when we've written about this, we've had to write it in multiple ways. If I write time and a half, that doesn't click in the mind of a 20 something or 30 something. Yeah. They have no idea what you're saying. Right. You're right. Whereas, They're like, what is that? Some kind of time travel thing? What is that? Yeah. Whereas time um, and a half for, you know, I'm, I'm 59 time and a half for somebody who grew up in the seventies, you knew what time and a half meant. It meant you got time and a half pay. You didn't have to say time and a half pay. If I say time and a half pay, that still might not click in a lot of people's heads. What I'm talking about. It's true. No, definitely. Definitely. People have gotten kind of used to like, just this is how it is. And, and they're working longer hours. Yeah. And that was sort of a standard. It, like I said before, it's had that insidious effect where it's just become, it's like the new normal. The new normal is you work more and you don't expect more. And, you know, you are kind of at the whim of whatever your employer wants, whatever your boss wants. And I think part of that is tied into like the worker and like uh, the gig economy. But beyond that, even just the idea of not having that kind of relationship with your with your employer where you're there for a long time and they kind of depend on you. Like we did a story a while ago about how, you know, the whole idea of stakeholder capitalism and how that's become sort of the new mantra and instead of shareholder primacy, which obviously was, you know, dominant for decades. And you look back at some of the statements from like the heads of U.S. Steel or GM in the 1930s, and they talk, what they're basically saying is stakeholder capitalism. They talk about how it's important to recognize the, you know, their stakeholders are their employers, their customers, people in the community where they're headquartered, like the shareholders are just one piece of it. And yeah. all that shifted, you know, in the seventies and eighties, I think largely due to like a lot of Reagan era policies. Yeah. So Marcus, what should we do? Like um, we're highly engaged. Uh, the civic venture yeah. team is highly engaged in driving policy. If it was up to you, what would you, what would you suggest the Department of Labor do? Probably has followed the example of, I mean, like I mentioned in the last story, there are some states that do have higher thresholds and where more they've expanded overtime protections, including California, Oregon, Washington. Now, yeah. Washington has a pretty impressive model, which they actually worked on very carefully. When you, I mean, we didn't get into it in full detail, but they really had a very democratic process where they had tons of like sessions around yeah. the state 
because Washington is very varied from Seattle to like, you know, the Eastern farmlands. And they had these discussions with stakeholders, with employers, with union people, with farm workers. And they came up with this very high threshold. I think it's going to hit 85,000 in a few years, but they're phasing it in because it's true. If all of a sudden you made it 85,000 nationally, all these companies would be, you know, running ragged and they'd probably be firing people and, you know, doing all kinds of tricks to get around the overtime rules. Yeah, so you have to but it phase be phased it in. in. Yeah. And they, and they did it. And I think in Washington, they're phasing it in over like six or seven or eight years. I mean, it's a very long phase in, but it's very robust. Yeah. And it's a, it's a kind did of you, smart Did you know that we it. architected that? Probably not. That's, I, I do actually. <laughs> I, now that I, yeah, I do remember that actually. Yeah. yeah. So you guys are geniuses. Yeah. Thank we you. We did that. <laughs> yeah. And we tied it. Right. And we tied it to the minimum wage. Yeah. Right. Right. Which is also smart. Yeah. So. Because which is historically, you know, the two of them came in together was minimum wage and maximum hours, because if you don't have maximum hours, the minimum wage is meaningless. Right, right. (laughs) They'll just pay you the minimum and then work you more hours. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, And and there were these historic ratios of, uh, you know, yes, they were somewhat pulled out of thin air at the time in the 1930s that the minimum wage was half the median and the overtime threshold was three times the minimum. But those were standards that were maintained for 30, 40 years before both the minimum wage and the overtime threshold were allowed to erode. Right. And as we've learned in Washington state, it turns out when you raise standards, not only is it not a job killer, um, it turns out to be uh, good for employment. We end up having a very robust economy and very robust job market. Yeah. Do you personally, did did you stake out some ground on where you think the federal government should go? We have a very strong view. Just wondering if you. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have like a prescription, you know, a a specific policy prescription, but I mean, I definitely think the Washington state one is a good model and and it's going to be a little more difficult on a federal level to get that high a threshold. But I know that, you know, right now the Biden administration is like working on, this revamp, which is supposed to happen in October uh, of overtime. And that might involve either taking it to the Obama level, which was 43,000, which is still kind of low to, you know, to beyond that, um, which would be good. I think most people are pushing for something in the fifties. I mean, I think some have also pushed for it to to align with the California uh, rules, which are a little more, you know, not quite as generous as the Washington state ones. And, and have a lot of protections, uh, including ones for farm workers uh, who are always historically excluded from overtime. So we're we're pushing them to go to eighty five. Oh wow! Yeah, which is the Washington. What that's the Washington State standard. Yeah, right. Basically, and at that level, the threshold would be uh, effectively where it was at the former high water mark. Right. S- same. Right. Same percentage. Yeah, well, actually a little lower, but but yeah. close to the same percentage of, yeah. uh, uh, you know, f- about 60 percent of salaried workers would, would right. qualify for overtime. And in our discussions with the Department of Labor and with uh, a senior administration officials, uh, one of our core arguments is that if you don't raise the threshold to include most people, you can't reestablish the norm. Right. Right. Like right. it has to be a social and economic expectation again that if right. you if you're doing what other people tell you to do 
which is most people, uh, then they should pay you for the extra hours that they require that that workload requires. Um, right. And if they don't want to do that, then they should hire more workers. <laughs> uh, it, because you know, I think that the, the other sort of dirty secret of overtime is that it's that a high standard is probably the biggest job creator as a policy that is available in the country. Because hmm. if you require businesses to pay people time and a half, their best alternative, if they actually have the work to do, is to hire new workers um, to take the pressure off the old workers. And you know, if you've got 30 million, 40 million people working 60 hours for 40 year hours of pay, and right. all of a sudden can't do that anymore, you've effectively created 10 million new jobs. Right. And that was the original incentive yeah, uh, right. of the Roosevelt administration and you know, with the with the Fair Labor Standards Act was to kind of create overtime was meant to spur job creation. That's right. Uh, That's right. And it, I mean, it's interesting because the labor people have always been a little bit have had kind of a they've changed over the years. But I remember there's some quote from like Samuel Gompers from like 1910 or something where he was wary of overtime because he thought it'll become a new normal and then it won't spur job creation. And people will be just be used to working that extra level of work, which is kind of what happened. And most of them didn't qualify for overtime. So even it was even worse than his like worst nightmare. But but that is a key thing. Like, you're right. To kind of bring it back to it's been so slow and so um, you know eroded that it's gonna take some major change to even get back somewhat to close to the pace that it was at before or where you know the coverage yeah. that was was there before so it's yeah. unfortunately like all these little changes barely make a difference yeah like obama's change wouldn't yeah. have made much of a difference i mean that's it, right it, and you know obviously trump's barely was even worse that's right our hope is that the biden administration will do better um so one final question why do you do this work why do i do this work uh good question i don't know i think i mean part of it actually is i mean i do have these are issues I care about. And I think, I mean, number one is I feel like a lot of um, wage and hour issues and worker safety and health issues, especially among, you know, the working class and lower middle class, the people who make up to do the jobs that help, you know, the country run are ignored by the media. And you barely see any coverage of it. I mean, even like researching this overtime thing, you barely see any stories about it. Like there was a few stories in when Obama, you know, made his... A proposal and then there's nothing just as people I mean, just don't get it just like the workers it's probably worse in the digital era where everyone's looking for clicks and so even any kind of substantive or an analytical yeah. story has to be driven by some big controversy in the news cycle i mean it, it's the whole yeah. media problem and then i think for me it was also kind of personal the income inequality because as i i was always amazed at how when i started off in journalism at the daily news in like the late 90s i was making forty thousand a year which you know was sort of like I was the cub reporter just starting out. This is what you make, and uh -huh. then almost like 17 years later, so in 2012, 2013, I was like paying people. I was a managing editor of this like online news publication. I was paying people. Our starting salaries for reporters was thirty thousand. So salaries dropped 25 percent over almost 20 years. Now, in what other, you know, and that's not accounting for inflation. That's not even accounting for inflation. No, that's, it doesn't even that's account That's a 20% drop in, uh, in real uh, income. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it, it was just like I was, I was like, what other profession does that? It's 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 insane. It was like so just sad. Like my reporters were like doubling up in like apartments we had on Long Island just to like pay the rent and afford to do this job. So it just it, it brought it home, and then obviously you know seeing people lose their jobs and people you know who were accountants all of a sudden working in a subway. It's yeah, it's pretty obvious, and it just seemed like something that needs to be uh, revealed and, and reported. Yeah, you know, I suspect, Marcus, that part of the reason why this doesn't get attention or didn't get attention is that uh, journalists and uh, progressive think tank uh, workers, they all work uh, long hours for low pay and no overtime. Right. And so it just never occurs. And well, everybody does this. Why? What are these people complaining? I'm I'm working like this, right. too. Right. This yeah. is the norm. This is this is what it, what you do to get ahead in America. Yeah, no, it's true. Uh, that isn't that there's that I think sensibility among journalists, and then also, I mean, to shine you know more of a harsh light on the media, I think the reporters have kind of lost touch in many ways with like the working class. Like, mm -hmm. you don't see stories about that, they're kind of relegated to like oddball little publications with small circulations or you know, little quirky websites. And the main publications don't cover these issues because they're caught up in other big stories. Like the business section is full of like sexy stories about tech mm -hmm. and nothing about, you know, like look at the number of labor reporters well, who've right. been like laid off. All those labor reporters, they, every paper used to have a labor reporter. Not, not anymore. Uh, a few and none of them, not at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Lots and lots of business reporters, very few labor reporters. So we only get yeah. one side of the story. And the side of the story you hear is, oh, no, with we can't afford to if, if you pass this rule and you raise the overtime threshold, we're going to have to lay people off. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Which it doesn't course. really happen. So, yeah. All right. Well, listen, uh, thank you so much for doing the work and being with us on the podcast. Uh, really fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. I think, Nick, you know, we've covered this this topic before. I think it's interesting, uh, Marcus, talking to workers who are impacted, how few of them actually knew yes. uh, that, <laughs> that, yeah. that, they, uh, that, that this was their right, not only to get that time and a half, which, uh, as we mentioned, a lot of people don't know what time and, the, and a half means anymore. Yeah. Uh, but that they should eat, get paid at all because, you know, in America, you work hard to get ahead. That's just what's expected of you. And if you don't put in that extra work, well, you know, the you know, I guess uh, you're just not dedicated to your job. You're not you're yeah. not meant for success. Yeah. Um, my big takeaway, and, and this is something we've we've learned over the years as we said, we originally approached this from a policy perspective, is uh, how much the erosion of the policies have eroded norms and expectations. That it used to be in America, that word free time, when you had free time, free time was something that that you had to spend with your your family, with your kids and with your friends, uh, to go on vacation, to pursue hobbies, to do things that interested you outside of the workplace. That's what free time was. That's what it meant. And now free time is something that your employer expects from you. They yeah. want your time for free. Uh, and we just shrug our shoulders and say, oh, I, I guess that's just the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I mean, that that's so much a part of why we 
hope that the Biden administration will raise the threshold above, you know, towards 60 percent, because if you can reestablish the norm, you can change the culture. And right. Uh, I think that would be good for everybody. Uh, again, you know, like I, I just I want to underscore that, you know, this issue goes deeper than just trying to increase the wages for middle class mm -hmm. people for me. You know, our country, as we've said many times before, is flying apart and it is flying apart because the objective fact that for most people, the bottom, certainly the bottom 90 percent of earners, things have gotten harder and shittier every year since the 70s, has shredded the reciprocity norms that make social cohesion and democracy possible. And when I think about these policies, like the overtime threshold, we're trying to go beyond the economic inconvenience of getting screwed by your employer. We're trying to rebuild the society and the culture by proving to people that the government that they elected is moderately on their side and the democracy that they participate in is worth defending and supporting. But there's no way to get them to do that if every year their lived experience is, no, I just got screwed again. Right. And and so, you know, that's why this is so important is that the only way the country will be better is if people feel better. And the only way they're going to feel better is if they do better. And the only way people actually do better is if they're fucking paid more. That's it. Right. But also not not overworked. I mean, let's be yeah, clear. No, a lot of people would make the choice. Yeah, a lot. Of, some people would choose to work the extra hours yeah. and get that time and that's a half. right. And some people would choose not to work the extra hours yeah. and spend time with their children. And that's and that's awesome. And the thing is, is that is it you know we're sort of in the country at this point in sort of in an existential fight over the future. And the best way to secure the future is to make sure that most people feel like things are going well. And here's an opportunity to do that. And we should take it. And just to remind listeners, the Biden administration through the Department of Labor is in the process of updating the overtime threshold. Uh, we've been involved in lots of meetings. I've personally met with uh, you know, senior folks in the administration over it. Uh, we've lobbied senators and uh, folks in Congress to uh, push, and they they are indeed going to do something. The question is, how far will they go? Right. And uh, but uh, you know, I think that listeners can expect in the next month or two to hear something about overtime, and uh, hopefully, we'll be celebrating, not crying. Right. And. And 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 let's be clear why why this is important is that this is something the president can actually do. This is something yeah. that the Department of Labor uh, is legally authorized to do through the rulemaking process. It's very different than the minimum wage. President Biden can talk about how he supports a $15 minimum wage, uh, but if the Democrats don't have the vote in Congress, if Manchin and Cinema won't vote to uh, override the filibuster so that we can get this through the Senate, then it can't be done. The president can't do anything about it because we don't have enough votes in the Senate to do it. We have enough yeah. in the House at the moment, not enough in the Senate. But the overtime rule, that can be done without Congress. and and. 
that's why we're counting on the Biden administration to go bold yeah. on this one and and lead through action, not just through words. That's right. And on the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we will be covering the lingering effects that long COVID has had on the economy and the labor market. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.